I am talking to Mario Tello, uh, the author of an incredible new book on Aristophanes called Resistant Form, Aristophanes and the Comedy of Crisis. Uh, Mario is a professor in the Department of Rhetoric uh, at Berkeley, where he also has uh, positions in comparative literature and ancient Greek and Roman studies. Um, and he has published this book with uh, Punctum Books. Uh, under an imprint called Tangent, uh, of which I am a member of the editorial board. My name is Sean Gerd. I'm the chair of classics at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and we have been working on this book in one form or another for about two years. Well, Mario has been working on it and I've been encouraging and eagerly anticipating. Uh, and this is just a conversation to introduce the book, talk about some of the concepts in it. I think it's a really exciting book. Um, if I can be allowed to be a little bit geeky, since I'm talking from Texas, I can open with a reference to uh, bluegrass. Uh, Tony Rice used to call himself the gasoline. He was so good at playing guitar fast. People called him the gasoline. And uh, I think Mario Tello is the gasoline in classical studies right now. There is virtuosity on every page. And yet, at the same time, it's not empty. It's not um, pointlessly flashy. There's a sincere, urgent, and uh, very important statement, not just about form, not just about comedy, um, but about the way in which reading fits inside the world and offers a way for us to be together, which is uh, challenging and really exciting all at the same time. So I think we'll just uh, talk about the book. I've got some questions for Mario and Mario will tell us about uh, what he's written. Uh, so I think the first thing that really jumps at you when you read this book, right, it's really announced right at the beginning of the book, and then it's beautifully followed up throughout, is that I think we have here a new paradigm for understanding Aristophanic comedy, and maybe other things. It's a model of comedy that I think is genuinely new, and I think it's the first really new model of comedy in a generation. Um, it moves beyond um, what I would have said was the old paradigm, and that was the Bactinian paradigm of the carnivalesque. Um, and this is, by the way, but not a uh, not a diagnosis that I'm making unprompted. This is really kind of where the book starts. So I thought it might be a useful thing for us to do um, if we started by talking about what the carnivalesque is, how that worked uh, in terms of the way people were understanding Aristophanes. And then, Mario, I'd like to know why do we need to move beyond it? And how does this book take us into a kind of a new way of thinking about Aristophanes? Well, thank you so much, Sean. Uh, first of all, I mean, thank you at many, many levels. Thank you for asking me to write this book. I will never have written it. I would have never written it if you hadn't asked me to be part of this super exciting event in classical studies and beyond, which is the creation of Tangent as a space, a genuine space for creative experimental scholarship. So thank you for that. Thank you for letting me do what I wanted. Thank you for the many conversation that we have had throughout the years on this project. 
thank you just for being, just for being in the field and for being such an inspiring and supportive interlocutor. So talking about the uh, Carnivalesque, yes, that is a very influential model of interpretation of comedy. And why is it influential? Because in a sense, it allows you to eat your cake and have it too, because it allows scholars to posit a moment of subversion, uh, a kind of revolutionary turning upside down of hierarchies, but it can also allow them to contain, to constrain, you know, this moment. Because in the Carnivalesque, you know, the hierarchies are, you know, turned upside down, but just for a day within the uh, temporal bounds, you know, of a performance. So the idea is that after the show is over, everything goes back to normal, right? So consequently, uh, if we think of antiquity, so we are thinking about societies uh, uh, that were strongly hierarchical, you know, we're talking about Athens, a society where being a citizen was basically belonging to a club, you know, a society that was predicated on the exclusion of women and the marginalization and oppression of slaves, right? So in tragedy or in comedy, women and slaves are at the top of the hierarchy just for a day and then everything goes back to normal. Also, in a sense, the carnivalesque, you know, reinforces that hierarchy precisely because it establishes, you know, a dichotomy between what is real, the hierarchy, and what is purely fictional, that is this transgression of it. So uh, the carnivalesque is fundamentally a conservative model of thinking, you know, conservative, even just the, in the etymological sense of the word, because everything is preserved. You know, you show a moment of rapture, of disruption, precisely in order to create or recreate or, you know, frequently reperform the status quo that then you pretend to upset. Um, I think that there is a problem there um, which makes, you know, comedy, if interpreted in that way, quite unsatisfactory as a genre. So why uh, should we keep, you know, teaching a genre like this uh, in this specific you know, moment in time in which, you know, uh, hierarchy has become, not that it wasn't before, but especially now, after certain events in the United States, hierarchy has been turned, has become a, not just a constraining, but I would say a constrictive, you know, force. So how can we turn... Norm can we turn comedy 
into an exploration of normativity and its limits and in, in an ex, into an exploration of the possibilities of the anti-normative beyond the carnivalesque. Because, you know, why do people resort to that model? Precisely because at the end of the day, they embrace an intentionalist mode of thinking or an historicist mode of thinking. You know, uh, the assumption, the underlying assumption, the, you know, unspoken assumption is that nobody in ancient society wanted uh, a radical change or very few people wanted a radical change. And that desire for change cannot be expressed in a text. A text, an ancient text, is always the expression of uh, uh, an elite, an aristocratic point of view. So it's not remotely possible, if we think in historicist terms, that positing a kind of subversive intention, a subversive project that goes beyond the Cavernivalesque has any possibility of getting close to what uh, an ancient person, somebody living in Athens, would think. It's not possible for a project like that to uh, be considered part of the frame of mind of an ancient Athenian citizen. So that's why we need to go beyond this historicist, intentionalist point of view. Otherwise, yes, please. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, you've, you've said a bunch of really interesting things there, but I'd like you to finish. Otherwise, continue the sentence. And then Otherwise, you know, if we think in these terms, we really need to make a case for uh, this text and the reading of this text still today when, you know, many of our students have the right to express discomfort for reading the products of societies that uh, uh, were based on a programmatic exclusion of the existence of certain people, right? So historicism, you know, can become complicitous, you know, with certain dynamics of oppression, right? Saying, well, that was the way they fought at the time means to, first of all, monumentalizing a text, that is a text makes sense only when it's located in that context and consequently means to, you know, isolate the text from the world of the interpreter. And it also means to subscribe to certain logics that require, you know, from us a kind of ethical political distancing. So an ethical political you know necessity can become you know a way to defamiliarize interpretive paradigms and to foster a new way you know of looking at the genre uh, this that unfortunately seems to me quite stale you know in the way it has been treated by classical scholarship so far precisely because classical scholarship cannot never cannot ever 
liberate itself of its uh, historicist and consequently intentionalist foundations. Can you, is it, can I sum up what you're saying? You're saying that the, the, what you're doing with Aristophanes and with the, the, the kind of comedy that Aristophanes, I guess, stands for, for us, is much, much more risky uh, for you, much more dangerous for you personally as a critic than if you had um, adopted this other historicizing carnivalesque uh, stance. So if I can maybe sum this up in a way as summarizing what you said, um, put it like this, with any kind of temporary social subversion, any kind of Bacchanalian or Saturnalian moment of social subversion, you can engage during that moment, but at the end of it, uh, you're just back to where you were. What it does is it exactly. sort of purifies and refreshes you're back to where you were. And as a critic, you don't even have to engage. You can see other people engaging in this uh, fun subversion of codes and systems and yourself remain safely at a distance so that when you speak, what you create as a critic, what you create is the fiction of describing a past event, but you have yourself not been put at risk in any way. Well, if, yes. If you had, if you like, total Saturnalia or permanent carnival, you would not be able to stand separately and things would not go back to normal. It wouldn't be uh, a... Uh, it wouldn't even be the creation of a new social order. It would be the dissolution of social order per se. And you yourself, if you commit to that kind of a reading, whatever that is, we haven't really talked about what kind of a reading that is yet, but if you commit to a, that kind of a reading that doesn't allow for some kind of segregation through historicism or intentionalism, you commit to a kind of radical self-subversion at every moment when you encounter the text. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, no, I think... You are thinking that you are actually expanding what I said in a very interesting direction. You are basically suggesting that the carnivalesque is not just, you know, a mode of reading comedy, but it's actually the very stance that the critic, you know, adopts precisely because there is the same kind of immunitarian gesture that is, I'm engaging with the text. For the moment, I'm engaging with uh, its subversive content, but, you know, I'm completely detached from it. You know, I'm not participating, right? So I am trying to put into place interpretive strategies that allow me to keep myself at a distance. So it's a kind of immunitarian gesture, which, of course, always implicates you know, the disavowal of autoimmunity, precisely because you can never entirely separate yourself from the object that you are interpreting in the same way in which the carnivalesque, you know, can never really bring things back to the way they were, right? So there is always change even when you create a structure that programmatically prevents change. But I think that, that the level of interpretation, there isn't a willingness to engage 
with how the failure of the Carnivalesque, the fact that the Carnivalesque always produces some change, you know, is uh, perceived, you know, can be detected interpretively, you know. So in a sense, what I'm trying to do is uh, to offer a way to, to show that uh, after a performance of subversive content, there is always the remainder of something that cannot be entirely reinscribed, you know, into the status quo. And how do you how do you live with that remainder? If you have a critical practice that uh, uh, either uncovers or simply is comfortable with the remainder and it stays there with you, how do you proceed? What do you do? Well, what do you call the remainder? Let's start there. And then what do right. you, how do you how do you get by with that? Well, um, for example, you know, uh, we are told, you know, the comedy is always funny, is always ironical, right? But if that's true, that is to say, if it's true, the comedy is defined by its very subversive content, the subversion necessarily implies a meta level, that is, it becomes a subversion of the subversive content, right? Because, you know, in a sense, when we are reading comedy, we are going with the grain because what we are given is a subversive content. So we are not actually subverting it. So we need, you know, to think about ironization of the irony, so to speak, which paradoxically can produce some kind of seriousness, right? The ironization of irony. So that's the kind of seriousness that maybe comedy can give us, what some people have called queer seriousness, right? Uh, a seriousness that is twisted. So paradoxically, what I'm, what I, you know, tried to suggest in the book is that the subversive content sort of prevents the critic subversiveness, right? You're not really uh, doing your job because the text, you know, is doing it for you, and consequently you are, you know, uh, caught in a kind of conservative trap. So for me, that, remi that reminds me of, I mean, a couple of my favorite themes, which you know about, but like, you know, the dialectic, what I, what we have talked about is the dialectic of failure, where if you are trying to fail, you cannot succeed. But on I the other hand, not succeeding at failing is failing, which is succeeding. Exactly. Failing. So you're exactly. in this infinite self contradictory uh self-contradictory loop the other um so when you know how how does one read a subversive text one has no way to read a subversive text you can't read it subversively because that is against the grain and you can on the other hand not read it subversively because it is subversive it is subverting your stance so you end up with a kind of a I mean, what do you want to call that seriousness? Oh, I have a word for it. It's a pataphilological seriousness. Oh, there you go. Yes. You know, you think about people like, uh, you know, my some of my heroes uh, who um, have done wild, wacky, and insane things with language, um, always with an incredibly serious face. And, I, you know, one way to read what happens in... Um, in extreme philology is just this, you know, what, what, what is there left to do but pun? 
and respond to the sounds to the sounds that are simply there in language. So, can you connect what we've said to the other? You know, the, one of the things in your title, which is the notion of form. So, how does this method of approaching? Uh, it's not a method. How does this way of being with an Aristophanic text interface with the notion of form? It's a surprising word to run into. I think lots of people, when they think of form, think of uh, new criticism. They think of uh, a, a very academic, um, very disciplined way of close reading. Uh, and in a way, they think of a refusal of any kind of hermeneutic altogether, um, and, and including what you're describing, I think, you know, there is a kind of a formalism that would take it as, uh, take what you're describing as anything but form. So how do you, I mean, what is this form that you're talking about and how does it connect with the, with the sort of post carnivalesque reading you've been, we've been. Yeah. So, uh, there are multiple ways that one could tackle this. Uh, I would just start by saying that nobody would contest the fact that Aristophanes is an incredible and exceptional creator of language, right? You can just take a look at any of his plays and uh, the quantity of not just puns, but uh, of neoformations, of neologisms that you find in his comedy is extraordinary. And that's something that was noticed in antiquity and then was also noticed, you know, in the 20th century. Um, so there is a tendency to separate, you know, the politics from these, uh, you know, strongly formalistic quality of uh, his writing and uh, one of the ways in which classicists have uh, usually approached the language of Aristophanes is to, you know, see it in terms of orality versus, uh, you know, written communication. The fact that some of these uh, plays are formalistically so complex and presuppose uh, a kind of sophistication in the manipulation of language would indicate that at this time, you know, at the end of the fifth century, you know, texts were not just delivered, but would circulate also in written form. I'm not interested in, in that, obviously, but uh, I'm interested in uh, the possibility of seeing this linguistic disruption that is uh, constant as a form of political disruption. So there is a kind of Ranciarian element here in the sense that uh, the kind of violation of the distribution of the sensible that uh, a neologism produces, right? You see this word, this uh, humongous word in, in many cases that you've never seen, and you have to stop literally, right? When you translate it, you have to think about it. You have to dwell on it. You have to linger if only to look it up in the dictionary. But let's think about how political change is produced. One of the ways in which it's produced is precisely by noticing expressions 
in which the impossible becomes visible or the impossible, you know, melts with the possible, right? And uh, moments in which we are forced to stop the regular flow of life in the same way in which when we encounter a weird world, we have to stop the hermeneutic process. This moment of lingering, you know, of interruption is political precisely because it forces you to reconsider the way of looking at the world by stopping your usual way of looking at a world that you have never seen. So there is an interesting implication of perceptual level, formal level, and political level that uh, Aristophanes forces us to engage in when he dumps on us these words that we have never seen before. So this is one of the examples, you know, uh, one of the, the first things that I would say in response to your question. As for new criticism, well, uh, the new critics, you know, as you said, saw this operation, their engagement with form as strongly academic, and they operated within an intentionalist frame of mind, that is to say, the text has a meaning, right? Or maybe a multiplicity of meanings, and we're going to discover what the meaning or the meanings are by bringing to the fore the structure that we are after. I'm not doing this. You know, I am interested actually in forms of uh, hypersensitive or oversensitive reading, right? You know, when, you know, we read this text, again, we have to linger. I'm really interested in, in this image of reading and lingering and toying with the problems, you know, uh, raised by a word. So this is, I would say, not an entirely academic, you know, way of approaching the text. That's why I like your reference to pataphilology. So this is para-academic or pata-academic, precisely because this is a kind of visceral engagement with textuality, which, uh, you know, academia tends to exclude because it uh, positions it within the domain of impressionism, right? One of the dichotomies that I grew up with as a graduate student was the semiotic and the impressionistic. The impressionistic is an effect of reading that is tenuous, right? This is another image, another adjective that is often used, you know, to dismiss some effects of reading that are produced, you know, when we engage or re-engage with the text. So I'm really interested in the tenuous, in the oversensitive, in the overanalytic, even in the useless, right? Even in effects of reading that seem inert. So that's why, you know, I um, think that this way of reading that Aristophanes forces us to engage with 
also because you know we have problems understanding his language many many times this can be a new a new new critical you know i use the expression that da miller uh, employs many times a too close reading right over close too close so there is a kind of hyper affective catexis to reading that uh, that i want to uh, encourage in the reader and they try to model in my own readings. I want to, I want to just let me follow up on that and, and ask you a little bit more about, um, uh, so I, <laughs> we have both sort of started to circle around the idea that we're describing practices that can't be safely described as academic, or at least that don't fit into the way academic behavior in, uh, older classics departments tended to work, which was in a, in a very disciplined, I mean, discipline in a bad way. There are kinds of discipline that get you to ecstasy. Those are great. These are, there are also kinds of discipline that don't. And so discipline in a bad way doesn't produce ecstasy. Um, but surely this is a thing that could happen in a classroom. Um, and it must happen when you're simply reading. I mean, if you're sitting down with someone and working on Aristophanes and you hit one of these massive compounds, for example, uh, what happens? How does how does your approach to these compounds? Uh, and let's assume this is a student who can read Greek, and or you just assume it's a colleague. You're reading Aristophanes with a colleague, someone you don't have to teach. How does that work? I mean, so often you run into a word like that, you break the compound, you figure out the relationships between the elements, and you say what the word means, and then you move on. What you're describing is something else, and you don't end by moving on, or you don't end with an answer to the puzzle that's proposed by the compound. So how does that? Can you? Can you sort of tell me what is the outcome of a reading like this, where you where you well, stop and your suspense is somehow uh, your suspense becomes the substance of the encounter instead of just a scandal that you have to get beyond? Right. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, I'm actually interested many times in the mistakes that students make in translation because sometimes they are mistakes produced by what is called grammatical agreement like a noun and an adjective you know uh, that a student does not uh, bring together in the right way but sometimes you know the kind of wrong juxtapositions that a student suggests when they you know read the wrong translation uh, give you, gives you a sense that grammar is really an exclusion of other potential juxtapositions between words. You know, that uh, a text like Aristophanes does not operate only through the level of grammar, which then produces a right translation, but also operates at the level of grammatical impossibility i would say you know because some of these big words that you're talking about you know really play with the possibilities of language and transgress these possibilities consequently uh, there is a space in texts like this for i would say more paragrammar for uh, what's the expression that Freud uses? Parapraxis, right? Parapraxis, you know? Uh, and uh, again, these are phenomena which are covered also by pataphilology. They're phenomena that don't usually um, 
have a place in academic writing or that, uh, you know, a classicist would say, oh, no, you know, this is bullshit or this is uh, something that an ancient reader could have never thought of. But actually, these alternative grammars that emerge in the work of translating are important because what is political change if not an alternative grammar of the sensible, of the institutional? So that's why we need to pay more attention to how a sentence creates multiple juxtapositions, not just the ones that result in a translation. There are others that cannot be translated into meaning, but actually open up, you know, multiple potentialities that we can actually interpret and turn into an effect of reading through critical theory, for example. So one of the things that uh, you're saying right now makes me want to respond with is just the observation that grammar, for one thing, is itself the name of an, an institution. So when we talk about it, so, you know, if you look at the way Plato uses the word grammatica, he's talking about learning to read. But by the first century BCE, grammatica has become an institutionalized art with a theory yeah. of attached to it which is very strongly normative. I mean, you would think that Grammaticae was very strongly normative and an Aristophanic text historically shouldn't be expected to adhere to that format, but that those standards, the standards of Grammaticae are our standard. I mean, they are the sort of standard philological standards, standard standards, that's cute. Um, and um, we, so you're describing a kind of a way of reading which shows how this these texts escape that institutional structure I wanted to say that, and then it occurred to me that uh, one of the places you can find the kind of uh, freer, more open, more playful uh, readings of texts, particularly from an etymological perspective, are in fact in grammatical scolia. So um, the scolia two, the uh, this is very geeky, but the scolia two, the technic grammatica that's attributed to Dionysius of Thrace contain, I was just working on uh, a series of etymologies of the word prosodia, which is the word for... Uh, oh, yeah, the Pindaric uh, genre, yes. Placement of accents in this case. But the, the etymologies that are in the scolia, which are spread out over multiple manuscripts to this sort of foundational text for grammar, uh, are full of all kinds of paralogisms and uh, things that, like we would say, well, this is definitely wrong. And I just wonder whether the Aristophanic scolia don't themselves contain an enormous amount of, or at least a quantity of uh, linguistic playfulness that uh, the standard, the notion of a grammatical standard blinds us to. So that one cites these things as funny, as obviously wrong, instead of paying attention to what's actually happening there, which is the open dissemination of whatever you want to call it, the open dissemination of meaning in exactly in the paratext, right? It's right beside the text that's happening right there. Yeah, the scholiast have no problem falling into the vortex, you know, that uh, modern critics, on the other hand, try to keep themselves at a distance from. You know, of course, they also fall into it, but uh, they say they're not. Um, and actually, what you were saying made me think of these uh, projects that I have in mind, uh, you know, for um, 
Catholic Uniber series on on Latin on Latin through the ages it's called. So I think I'm gonna do for her something on etymology and critical theory. And so the idea is to pair Varro with Derrida, Isidorus with Nancy, and Macaronic Latin with Fred Moten, and seeing you know how you know. Uh, the manipulation of etymologies in Latin in that tradition, you know, can be mapped onto, you know, something uh, similar that happens in critical theory all the time. You know, um, I mean, I just I just reread an interview that Judy Butler gave, you know, in 2000 uh, when they had just received this horrible review from Martha Nussbaum. And of course, they were criticized for the writing. And uh, in this interview, you know, uh, she sort of, she or they, um, uh, 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 problematizes the notion of accessibility, right? Accessible writing. And she also says, uh, you know, I am on Adorno's side, you know, that is to say, kind of play with language that can also produce, uh, you know, uh, sophistication that some people consider illegible or impenetrable against someone like Bourdieu, who had no tolerance, you know, for these gestures that he, he called Heideggerian or post-Heideggerian, yeah. Right, so um, this, you've just, you since you raised this, let, let me bring it in. Um, one of the things about you, Mario, that uh, I don't know if people know this, certainly people in the field know it, um, is that you have been just unbelievably prolific in the last five years. Um, how many books? Well, uh, I finished my sixth one and the seventh is underway. So I don't think anything more needs to be said than that. That is more than one career. That's several careers in a very short period of time. The reason that seems relevant at this point, uh, Mario, is that you have just talked about the centrality of lingering as you read. So how do you square the circle of reading so closely that you're stopped at every moment, forced to pause practically at every syllable, uh, constantly in a state of temporal suspense with the incredible speed with which you write? How, does, how do those two things go together? Well, I tend to spend a lot of time inside Right, so I I don't that's like. Not good I want to. I want something. No, no, I understand that that's not that's not really an answer. Um, uh, but uh, it does, uh, you know, explain a lot of things. Right, I probably most people would say that I don't have a life, uh, but for me, this is my life. In any case, um, the way I work, yeah. So I read a lot of theory. I must confess. So I do read a lot of critical theory and I do take a lot of notes when I read. Uh, so I, I guess I'm talking about really the practicalities, you know, of uh, my uh, working uh, activity, you know, how I write. So, yeah, I, I read a lot of theory, take a lot of notes, which in a lot of cases means really just to, you know, underline and then copy and then put in a file you know, uh, my theoretical readings. And then, uh, yes, I do read the text very carefully, multiple times, 
you know, I take a pen and I do underline things uh, and I play with the arrows. So there is really a kind of uh, pata philological, you know, exercise there, you know. I play, and it's almost like a geometry, like one word, you know, recalling another or connecting with another. And I try to visualize that on the, the very page that is with a pen connecting words. And then I just put it in writing. Like I don't start from the beginning, right? But uh, I just do one reading, another reading, and then I just bring them all together. And so bring them all together, become a puzzle. In this way, you know, by allowing myself not to start from the beginning or by allowing me, by allowing me myself to start even before having had an overarching argument yet, I uh, I can speed up the writing process. Well, I think that a lot of people, uh, they think that they need to have a clear idea of the old book, of the old project, of the old article before they start writing. And for me, that would be a strategy of procrastination in the sense that if I did that, probably I would never, you know, sit down and do it. So I do it piece by piece and then I see how they fit together. And also another way of, yes, please. Is it a kind of a, a process of association and rhyme? So you're 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 putting things together. I mean, rhyme in the loosest possible way, right? You're you're connecting words and phrases and and structures inside of a passage, based on uh, sonic similarities, based on rhythmic similarities, thematic yes. return. And then when that so that is a process of of association and rhyme. And then when you put your readings together, it's the same thing. The question is, well, does this reading go with this one? Do they like resonate when I put them together? So um, it's really a creative process, you know. I mean, from the, works from the ground up, and this you don't yeah. start with. My argument is going to be this. My thesis is going to be this. My performance of authority is going to sound like this. It's a much uh, riskier process. Once again, I think. It's, yeah. So and it's much more fun. So it's it has to be fun. Right. For people who are watching this, I'm just saying, you know, academic writing has to be fun. Otherwise, you're not going to do it. Otherwise, it's just an obligation and uh, you're going to dread it when you have to do it. No, it has to be fun and consequently it has to be creative. And that's why we need spaces like this that uh, uh, encourage creative work, which just means to not to be afraid of the potentialities of antiquity, really. Right. So you said before, you know, falling into the vortex, you want to fall into, you've, you're jumping right in. And yes, with, you know, the it's, sort of dictate the... it's like getting high with an ancient text. I don't see how we don't stop there, Mario. Okay, let's stop there. <laughs> Just an excellent place to stop. And actually, as it turns out, it's about the right amount of time. So we will end with Getting High with Aristophanes. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, folks, you got to read this book. Uh, it, I mean, we are, Tangent is very happy to have it, but this was a book that was going to come out one way or another. And it will change not just Aristophanic studies, but I think the way people read classical texts as well. Um, so thank you for the book and thank you for the time. Uh, Mario. Thank you, Sean.